I do hope that we do believe that God is at work and that revival is possible in us personally and in the church. If I was to connect today's message to that song, here's the caution I would give you. The miracle that God wants to do may not be the miracle you think he should do. Okay, so you got that planted in your head, and now you're going to listen as we turn to Matthew chapter 11, the gospel that we have been with all, well, since uh, this new year, since Advent, uh, we've been in the gospel of Matthew, journeying, following Jesus, trying to figure out in this second half of the year what it means to be the people of God, the church. The text, following the lectionary text, so these are the texts that are chosen for those that choose to follow the lectionary. The lectionary committee selected chapter 11, verses 16 to 19, and 25 to 30. So it's an odd combination that we have this morning. I'm not going to read them all at the front side of my message. If you have your Bible, and I've heard you rustling in your pages, so thanks for bringing your Bible with you. Uh, Just keep it open, because we're going to pick up verses as we go along, and I want you to read along with me. At first, when I began to study this text at the beginning of this week, I was really kind of struck by the idea that these are an odd combination. Why did the lectionary committee choose to put these verses together? And I I didn't see it. At first, I kind of wrestled with it. It was, it was a hard passage for me. And then somewhere along the way, God helped me to see something that I hadn't seen before. So that's a bit of what I'm going to try to unpack for us this morning. But in order to do this, I can't just read these specific verses. I need to kind of fill in the chapter. And so I need you to listen uh, carefully and quickly with me. I need to speak quickly because otherwise my sermon's going to take too long and I don't want that to happen. So we're going to try to fill in the details so that we can then get to the assigned text. In chapter 11, verse 1, we're told that Jesus travels around from town to town preaching the good news. Now, this is a narrative function for us. It tells us that there's transition happening. And one of the things that you need to know about Matthew's gospel, these gospel stories aren't just history. They're told for a particular reason, and they're constructed in a particular way. And each gospel is unique. And one of the things that we discover in Matthew's gospel is that when he concludes a section of teaching... He puts in this narrative notation that Jesus went from town to town preaching and teaching. He did this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what's called discourse number one in Matthew. We just finished discourse number two, the missionary discourse in in chapter 10. And so this little notation is a clue to us that, okay, something is changing. There's a new teaching that's coming our way. And we're told in verse two to start this, that John the Baptist is in prison. Now, we might recall that we met John the Baptist all the way back in Matthew chapter 3. That's when, before Jesus even started his public ministry, he comes to John and and he asks John to baptize him, which John kind of wants to say, no, you should baptize me, but but he does allow, uh, finally does does baptize Jesus. And the text tells us at the end of chapter 3 that... It seems as if John the Baptist was present when the the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in the form of the dove, and that John the Baptist maybe heard the words that are recorded in in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, this is my son whom I love, 
and with him I am well pleased. But now we find John in prison. And there's a question that that seems to be troubling John. Are you the one, Jesus? He sends his disciples to ask this very question. Should we expect another And I don't know about you, I think about the history of what we know about John the Baptist, his connection to Jesus and his his earthly ministry and, and the way he was preparing the way for Jesus. Surely Jesus wants to put his mind at rest, don't you think? And so we find in John or Matthew chapter 11, verse 4, Jesus replied to this question. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now I think you and I hear these words because we know the story. We've heard the story. We've, we've lived this story, many of us in here, for many years. And so we read these words, and starting with verse 4, and we think, oh, yes, that's right. He's confirming for John the Baptist that, yes, indeed, I am the one. I am the Messiah. Put your mind at ease, John. But friends, this is part of the challenge of reading the Bible. We have to remember that they didn't understand what it meant for Jesus to be Messiah, really and truly. They had a defined expectation of what Messiah was. And so I want to suggest to you that the words that Jesus says here, although uplifting to us, and we say, oh yes, that's what it means to be Messiah. See, Jesus did that. Look at all the good that he did, and it is good indeed. But friends, I don't think it puts John's disciples' minds at rest. I don't think this is the answer that they were expecting at all. Remember, John's in prison John's a prophet of God. And if Jesus is the Messiah of God, shouldn't the Messiah get the prophet out of prison? After all, isn't that what the Messiah is supposed to do? It's to set the captives free. It's to release Israel from the bondage to Rome. Not just little old John in prison, but all of Jerusalem, all of Israel that is held captive to this foreign empire. Is it the Messiah supposed to come and set us free? So if Jesus was the Messiah, I can just imagine John wrestling and stewing and thinking, he's the one, right? Where is he? Why haven't I been set free? Where's the army? Because everybody, all good Jewish people, were expecting a king, a warrior king, to come and set them free. And there sits John in prison. Jesus shows no sign of being a warrior king. And so, friends, John's concerned Now, I don't want you to hear me suggest that John isn't truly a prophet then. I don't think that's true at all. And Jesus doesn't think that's true either. Because if you go on to read verse 9, Jesus declares, even though he's been questioned, that John was a prophet. Indeed, greater than a prophet is what he says. So Jesus doesn't question John's... uh, calling to be a prophet or that he somehow has failed. No, 
Here's what I want to suggest to you, that John had a calling as a prophet of God to do one thing, to make straight the path to the coming Messiah. And I think John did that faithfully. How about you? He did it faithfully. Here's the problem I think, though. I don't think that meant that John really understood what the Messiah was about. He knew his call was to, to, to get the people to repent, to make way for the coming Messiah. But he had in his mind, apparently, still an idea of what the Messiah was supposed to do and who the Messiah was supposed to be. And Jesus wasn't fitting that parameter, that, that construct that John had. And so he began to question and doubt, but that doesn't make him a false prophet. Do you hear me? He did what he was called to do. But even prophets of God don't get to define who God is. And it's here that Jesus offers a really strange illustration to us. And where the lectionary text picks up for us in verse 16. This is Jesus speaking. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For, you came, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by our deeds. The commentators kind of wrestle with this, because like, it's odd. <laughs> what in the world is going on here? And I like the interpretation that suggests, you know, what is happening here is that Jesus is using the illustration of kids at play. So imagine the kids have gathered around and they say, let's pretend that we're at a wedding. It's a celebration. We'll, we'll play dance music and you dance with us and let's pretend that we're at a wedding. And nobody wants to participate. Okay, you don't want to be at a wedding? Well, okay, let's pretend that we're at a funeral. I don't know why you'd want to pretend that, but let's pretend we're at a funeral. Apparently, the crowd is looking rather somber, right? We'll play slow music, sad music, and, and you all can pretend like you're mourning and grieving. And crickets. Nothing. The audience doesn't want to participate. The crowd doesn't want to play. And then we have the Jesus tell us about John. John, as you know, lived in what we would call an ascetic lifestyle, a simple lifestyle, letting go of all the frills of, of the world. He lived in the desert. He wore camel skin. He ate locusts, for crying out loud, right? He gave up the luxuries of the world to be the prophet that he was called to be, a prophet that called people to repentance we know by a careful reading of the gospel that he patterned his life after prayer. In Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, can you teach us to pray like John taught his disciples to pray? And it's because of that question that we get the Lord's prayer in Luke's gospel. So John is a person that has stepped away from the frills of life, the luxuries of life. He's chosen to live an ascetic life. He's focused on prayer, but not just prayer. We also get in Matthew chapter 9, his disciples coming to Jesus, asking, why don't you fast? Because John had taught his disciples 
that fasting is required. And Jesus' response to John's disciples is, oh, fasting will come. Right now the bridegroom is with them. They don't need to fast. One day they will. So John's disciples, John's life is an ascetic life. He's a prophetic uh, call. To, he has a prophetic call to repentance. He's a man of prayer. He's, he's a man of, of fasting. Oh, this is a holy man, isn't it? And yet the world receives, that generation receives John the Baptist. And Jesus says they don't, they don't repent. They don't turn. They don't acknowledge. In fact, they say he has a demon. Here's this holy man that has come. And they don't recognize it. And then Jesus shifts gears. He's come. He's not an ascetic. We have nothing in scripture that tells us that Jesus wore camel skin. Camel hair is his clothing or that he ate locusts. In fact, we're told quite the opposite. He eats with drunkards. He, he eats, he has feasts with them. He sits around the table. He enjoys the luxuries of life in many ways. And yet, the people respond to him the exact same way they responded to John the Baptist. They refuse to see that God's kingdom is at work in him. What can I compare this present generation to, Jesus asks. Here's my interpretation. It seems to me that Jesus' answer to this rhetorical question is people who think they know God, know how God works, and yet miss God. What can I compare this generation to? People who think they know God, know how God works, and yet miss God each and every time. Hmm. I've always wrestled with the very end of this. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Well, that's a weird add-on to this. What does that mean? But I've come as I've sat with this text and, and really wrestled with it. Oh, I think this is actually the key to interpreting this text. What Jesus is really doing in this discourse in chapter 11 is really teaching us about godly wisdom. What does it mean for us to be wise John thought he knew what the Messiah was all about. And when Jesus didn't fit his model, he began to question. This generation thought they had God pegged. They knew what God does and what God doesn't do. And when they had the opportunity to see the work of God in two different ways, they missed it both times. They fancied themselves wise, the godly ones. And yet they missed God. Wisdom matters, of course. Knowledge matters. But human wisdom and human knowledge doesn't seem to amount to much to God and God's kingdom at work. It's, in other words, it's not just us on our own. It's not what I know up here. It's not what you know in your head that always matters. There's something else going on here that Jesus is trying to teach. And the verses that we skipped in the lectionary, verse 20 to 24, tell us about three cities. Bethsaida, Chorazan, and Capernaum all had Jesus working and ministering in their area. Multiple miracles were done, the text tells us, in that area. And yet they did not believe. And the text doesn't say exactly why, but if we're paying attention, what we need to understand is that the people had one conception, one idea of how God works. And even when a miracle happened among them, in fact, not just one miracle, but multiple miracles, miracle upon miracle, 
they did not see it as the hand of God at work in their lives. Mm. So the song that we sing, Miracle in the Church. Oh, I think God's doing miracles. I just wonder if we have the wrong concept of what the miracle should be. So we've missed it. We should at least be open to it because previous generations missed it, didn't they? And so we then come to verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Did you hear those words? I think I need to reread them. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to the little children. And it's not like this is just random. No, this pleases the Father, verse 26 tells us. All things have been committed to to you or to me by my Father. No one knows the Father except the Father. No, excuse me, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So here's this fascinating thing that's happening. God's at work in the world. He was at work in John the Baptist. He's clearly at work at Jesus because Jesus is the Messiah. We know that. John has questions about that, but we know that. He's at work through Jesus. Miracles have been performed, and yet all along the way, generations of people, people in all of these communities are missing it. They're not recognizing that God's kingdom has come, that indeed these two men are leading us into righteousness. So Jesus says the wise and learned can't see it on their own. You and me, we can't see it on our own. It doesn't matter how many degrees we have. It doesn't matter what our IQ is. We apparently, that doesn't really matter. All these wise and learned missed it. But God delights to reveal it in the children. And I have to ask, what in the world? Why? Why is God doing this? What does this mean? I think Jesus helps us to understand this, but before we pursue his line of thinking, I want to take a brief detour to the Garden of Eden. The original temptation, it seems to me, is about wisdom. Eat of the tree of knowledge. That's what the serpent says. Eat of this fruit. And your eyes will be opened, he says to Adam and Eve. The original sin of Adam and Eve was not to accept their limitation of knowledge. They were told, do not eat from this tree. And yet the temptation to have more wisdom, more knowledge, was so powerful that they immediately took the fruit and ate of it. Can you imagine that? We see this from the other side of history and think of all the ripple effects of this and think, what in the world? But friends, I want to suggest to you that that same temptation is with us. In fact, I think we often eat of this fruit. That we want to have more wisdom and more knowledge. We want to be in control of it. Given one opportunity to know all things, they gladly ate of it. I don't want you to think that I'm advocating some sort of anti-intellectualism. 
I don't think that's what's happening at all in this text. I don't think that's what's happening in the Garden of Eden. I don't think there's any evidence in Scripture that God doesn't want us to use our mind to worship Him. But when our knowledge, our own knowledge, begins to define who God can be and what God can do, well, it seems God doesn't appreciate that too much. Adam and Eve tried to short-circuit the wisdom of God. Instead of letting God reveal God's self to them at his own pace and his own timing, they wanted to short-circuit it, to know it on their terms. Adam and Eve have set a pattern for us, and I think we each have eaten of that fruit. So God, Jesus says, would rather reveal his true wisdom to children, to kids. And it's true that in Matthew's gospel, the little ones are references to his disciples. So we could just say it's his disciples. But I think if we just reduce it to disciples, we're missing a point here. Elsewhere in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus calls the little children to himself. The kingdom of God belongs to such of these. We're to have faith like children. I don't think we should dismiss in this text that what's really being revealed, the wisdom of God is being revealed to kids. And here's why. If you think about your own kids or kids you've been around, often when they're youngest, they're the most open to new ideas, new thoughts. They're open to the unimaginable things that we laugh at when they say it. Because we've been conditioned We've been imprinted with this idea that the world works one way. And that's a dumb idea. That's outlandish and silly. Put childish things away. Grow up. And I think when we do that, we miss out on this idea that we have to be open to God in such a way that God gets to define himself to us. We don't get to define who God is. Too often, we're in control of the wisdom and knowledge that we have. We're the ones that keep it. We're the keepers of that wisdom and knowledge. And friends, that's not what's happening here. We are to receive it as a child is receiving something that they have no concept of. Never heard. It's the first time that they're introduced to it. Oh, receive. Receive this wisdom. But when our knowledge begins to define who God can be and what God can do... God isn't appreciative of it. Did you notice verse 27? Verse 27 is made up of not very many words, actually. I counted them in the Greek. And over half of them consist of, of son, the son, the father. And if you look at the order of it, it goes this way. Son, father, son, father, father, son, son, father. Over half of the words of, of verse 27 are just those words. The son, the father, the son, the father. Oh, do you see what's happening here? This is relational language. This is intimate language. This is personal language. Jesus knows the father. The father knows the son. And no one knows the father but to the ones whom the son reveals the father to. Knowledge in Scripture is not facts. It's not data. 
That's important and it has its place. Don't get me wrong. But true godly knowledge, true godly wisdom, the foundation of that is always relational knowledge, intimacy. And Jesus says in verse 28, come to me. You don't actually get to know who God is without first coming to Jesus. And we saw in John chapter 14 that Jesus brings us to the Father. So access to God starts with us coming to Jesus. And, and one might think, oh, what really is happening here then is that this is a special kind of knowledge. This is a sacred knowledge. This is godly wisdom after all. This isn't something that we should just toss about to and fro and anybody have access to it. But in fact, friends, if you pay attention to the text, there's no limitation to who gets this call, is there? Jesus says these words. Oh, there are generations that believe they knew who God was. They thought God was going to work in one way and they missed it. But friends, I want you to know you can have godly wisdom. You can have connection to God and it begins by coming to me. And so any person that hears these words, including us today, hears Jesus say to us, come to me. Get access not only to him, but to the Father, to God. That we, we don't have to earn it. just given. It's an invitation to know. If we've been listening carefully to Jesus, the call to come is to be like a child, ready to see all the new things that Jesus wants to teach us. We have to be open-minded, friends, and I'm speaking to a bunch of Christians in here, a bunch of people that have grown up in the church, and I'm saying to you, my friends, and to myself, we have to open up our minds. We can't put parameters around the God that we think we know because he might want to teach us something new. But Jesus doesn't just stop with the invitation. He offers us something more. To all who are weary and burdened, he says, I will give you rest. Oh, I hope those words are underlined in your Bible. If they're not, you better do it right now. These are good words for us. This new wisdom is not heavy. It's not burdensome. One might think, oh, we're talking about God Almighty. This is burdensome language. It's not intended to be. It's relational knowledge. And this relational knowledge suits us. It fits us. It's just what we're created for, friends. This is what we were created for, to be in relationship with God. Oh, it's easy. It's light. I suspect that when we replace knowing God, this personal relational knowledge that I'm talking about, with knowing about God, impersonal data that we carry with us about God, that we find that second kind of knowledge burdensome. It chafes against us. It's heavy. It wears us down. Why? Because that's just data. It's impersonal. It's not really God. God's calling you into a personal relationship where you learn who God is by being connected to God. 
In fact, friends, did you see how connected we are meant to be? And I think this is getting maybe to a, a bit of what Tyler was getting at. Jesus says that we are to be yoked, to carry his yoke. Take my yoke upon you. And of course, in the ancient world, this was just a way of saying each rabbi had their yoke, their teaching that they were giving to their disciples. They called it a yoke. And that's certainly one way that we can interpret this, that Jesus offers us a teaching, his yoke. But friends, I want us to think about it this way. Yokes are used to connect two ox together. And what you and I should be thinking is that Jesus is connected right next to us. Jesus isn't standing behind us, whip in hand, beating us. Jesus isn't sitting in the farmhouse up on the hill with the hired hands driving the oxen. No, you and I are called to be connected to Jesus as if he is standing right next to us. The relational knowledge that Tyler was pointing us to, not just a way that's in front of us, the Jesus way. Oh, it's the Jesus way because here's Jesus right next to us. We're connected to him, yoked to him. And when we're yoked to Jesus, we discover that, oh, we might not have known God exactly the right way. We might need to actually know him differently. In fact, in fact I think we're given a window into that in this text. Friends, if I asked you, if you had two words to describe your God, who God is, you had a stranger come up to you in the street, and they just, I don't know anything about Christianity. I hear this word God. Who is he? What, where would your mind go? I mean, there's so many good words that we could pull out, right? Holy, righteous, just, almighty, everlasting. Well, what good words would you pull out Well, when we're yoked to Jesus? And we've opened our minds. And we've let go of some of our preconceived ideas and notions about God. Jesus says, well, the two words that come to mind are gentle and humble. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble. Do you know God is gentle and humble? If you do, that's good news, because that means you've been yoked to Jesus. Oh, keep walking the Jesus way Keep following, keep opening up your mind. Keep living out this godly wisdom where God is defining himself for you. But if you don't know God as gentle and humble, and friends, maybe it's time to let go of our knowing about God and to actually know God. Praise team's gonna come forward. We're gonna... Reflect on these words, sing together. But let's invite the Spirit to sift us. And I don't know, maybe some want to come to the altar. Maybe it's a time to say, you know what, God? I think I've been spending too much time thinking I know you and about you, but I actually need to know you personally. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would just come. I think of our world right now. And I think, oh man, if there's anything that we need more of in this world, it's probably more humility, more gentleness. 
And so if that's the God that you are, that you're gentle and humble, and we're supposed to be yoked to you, then it seems to me we're supposed to be gentle and humble as well. And God, I have to confess that that's not always who I am. I think sometimes it's, it's hard for those of us that have been around the faith for a long time to not settle for just knowing things about you. So God, I ask in these closing moments of worship, would you once again reveal yourself, your personal self to us? May we open up our hearts and minds to receive you and what you have for us. Change us, God. We ask in Christ's name.